Hi, I'm Ryan. Welcome to Bible on the Beach. Today we'll begin the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Now, why am I doing Bible on the Beach? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, I want to help all of us become disciples, genuine followers of Jesus. I want to do that by giving you a 25-minute explanation of each passage of the Bible. I also want to teach you and show you that you don't need a degree uh, to be a pastor. You don't need to go spend a bunch of money going to school to be one, but you can actually just watch these videos and you can learn. You can turn around and teach people yourself because my focus for my life is disciples making disciples, churches planting churches. So this is a tool to help you have a better understanding of God's Word and a more clear understanding of God's Word. The way that I was taught was uh, you, you use about 20 hours to put together a message. I don't teach that. I teach two-hour uh, message preparation where you can watch a video like this and then you can uh, turn the video off and you can open up your Bible and uh, with a pen and paper and say, okay, God, now what do you want to say tonight to the group of disciples that you've given me, the people you've given me to train? So that's the heart behind this. I hope that you'll be blessed uh, by Bible on the Beach. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now this is the beginning of the church, and we see that whenever God wants to start something, He always starts with two people. When God wants to make a physical life, He starts with a man and a woman. Two people make a new life. When God wanted to preserve life on earth, He put two of each creature into Noah's Ark, and whenever God wants to start a, a spiritual community, a church, he always starts with two people. We believe as followers of Jesus that life begins at conception. Now physical life, a new human life, begins at conception. When two strands of DNA form, uh, they come together uh, and they make a new life. And in the same way, a new church is started by two people who sense a calling for a community. That's when a church starts. So uh, it's really very important that you understand this because God always starts uh, something new with two people. A new life, a new church. That's very exciting. Now when you understand this simple idea about how life starts, physical life and spiritual life, the book of Acts will be exciting and it will make a lot of sense. So with that as an introduction, let's look at verse 1. It says, to Theophilus, that simply means a lover of God. Now, the same person that wrote the Gospel of Luke wrote the book of Acts. Now, Luke was a physician. He was an educated person. And God uses educated people. God uses uneducated people. God will always use the people that you don't think he'll use just to remind you that God's not, that he's not in your box. See, we like to keep God in our box, in our idea, in our algorithm, and God just simply doesn't work that way. God always operates outside of our understanding and the constraints that we put on him. So Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. He wrote this to Theophilus, the lover of God. He says, I write to you again, because he'd written to him one time before, uh, my dear friend, to give you all the details about the life of our Lord Jesus and all the things that he did and taught. Just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus left instructions through the Holy Spirit for the apostles 
that he had chosen. You see, God always gives us instructions when he wants us to do something. So you may, you may sense in your life that God's asking you to do something. He's calling you to do something. You ever, have you ever felt like God was talking uh, to you about doing something? And you'll know because you'll be baffled by it. You'll be thinking uh, to yourself, uh, well, this is crazy. Uh, there's no way that I could do this. How am I going to do this? Those are all signs that God is talking to you. God always talks to us about things that we can only do with his help and with his power. And that's one of the signs that he's talking to us. So he gave um, the, them instructions uh, about the apostles that he had chosen. Now verse 3 says, After the sufferings of his cross, Jesus appeared alive many times to the same apostles over a 40-day period. So Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was resurrected from the dead. There's a 40-day period where he showed himself to the people that had been following him for that uh, ministry period of, of three years uh, that he spent teaching his close disciples what it meant for his kingdom and his life to work in the lives of the people. <clears throat> so he went, a, he went around to them, proving to them with many convincing signs that he had been resurrected. Because if you'll remember, there were a lot of people that were doubting. Even one of his original followers, Thomas, doubted that Jesus had actually been resurrected. Just like we doubt. We think that doubt is something in our life that we deal with uh, all at one time. That's not true. Doubt is something like the waves behind me. It comes and it goes in our life. You may be in a season of doubt right now. You may be doubting that God's real. You may be doubting that God has a plan for your life. You may be doubting that life could get any better than it is in this moment. And it's okay if you have doubts in your life. What I've learned is that God is big enough to handle all of the doubts uh, that I have and that I face in my life. In fact, I can look back in my life and see times that I've doubted and, and in retrospect, God was with me every step of the way. So don't try to deal uh, away from your doubts. Just be okay and understand that they're like the waves behind me, they come and they go. So during these encounters, he taught them the truth of God's kingdom. So he went back over his teachings and went back over the Sermon on the Mount, back over the time he had sent the mountain twos uh, to, to, to do his ministry, to cast out evil spirits, to pray for people. Now in verse 4, Jesus instructed them. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait here until you receive the gift that I told you about, the gift the Father has promised. Now, if you're an entrepreneur or you uh, have kind of an alpha mindset, or you're a go-getter, the last thing that you want to do when you're starting something is to wait. What we like to do is we like to start working on our New Year's resolutions before January 1st. We like to start to work on really big goals as soon as we get the idea that we're supposed to accomplish them. Now, right away, God is trying to teach us something very important. What he's trying to teach us is, is that the beginning of your spiritual life 
begins with waiting. The beginning of your spiritual life begins with patience, waiting. You see, you learn that life is all about timing. And if you're going to have God's timing in your life and Him working through your life and flowing through your life, then you've got to understand when it is that He's telling you to move forward and when He's telling you to wait. And that is something that we get better about the closer that we get to God. The more that we pray, the more that we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, and to direct us in our life, we will get better about learning how to wait. Now, this is counterculture, and this goes against everything that we know about trying to be successful. Waiting? Who likes to do that? We don't like to wait at stop signs. We don't like to wait in lines. We don't like to wait for things to upload um, into our computer. We hate waiting. And yet God is trying to teach us something really powerful here. He's saying, don't move forward until you have what I've promised. And then he explains the promise. He says, for John baptized you with water, you and water, a full immersion in water was a sign to the world that they had laid down their life, what they wanted, their plan. It was a symbolic act. We're going to lay down our lives we're going to be baptized, and when we come back up, we're going to have a new life in Jesus. He says, this is how John baptized you, but a few days from now, I am going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, in this, it's the same word there. It means that not only were they going to get immersed in water baptism, but they were going to get immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now God is trying to teach us here right up front that in order to be his people in this world we need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. We've got to be drenched and full of the Holy Spirit. Now what does that look like? <clears throat> Have you ever prayed? God fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can be the person that you want me to be. In fact, if you've never prayed that right now, I want to invite you to pray that right now. Just say, Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit right now so that I can be the person that you want me to be today and tomorrow to represent you and to do your will, your way for your kingdom. You see, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it starts with stopping and asking God to help you live your life for Him. Now, I try to do this every day. I say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me your ideas. Give me your perseverance. Give me your grace. Give me your kindness. Give me your character for this day, today, so that I can be your ambassador, I can be your disciple, I can be your person that you want me to be today. You see, it's a yielding. It's saying, God, whatever you want to do in my life, that's what I want. And that is how you ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and that's how you stay filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, we need God to fill us with the Holy Spirit because we leak. Uh, we, we leak. 
I read a, a book last year about William Mulholland in the early early 20th century. He underwent the largest uh, public works infrastructure project uh, in that century. They built an aqueduct system from the bottom of the Sierras to the um, to what is now the city of Los Angeles. In fact, without that water aqueduct system, we wouldn't have the greater LA metropolitan area. And yet, when they were building uh, the aqueduct system and when they were building the dams, they realized that there, there would be leaks. And they would constantly have to patch them uh, so that they wouldn't get worse. We need God in our life to fill us every day because we leak and uh, we're not always the people that we want to be. <clears throat> so let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, Every time they gathered together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is it now the time for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now this is something else that God's trying to teach us. You see, from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, they wanted him to be a political savior. And Jesus, time and time and time again, reminds them and teaches them, I'm not a political savior. I don't have a political kingdom. Now, this really offends people who get their identity from the nation that they live in. If you live in the United States and you say, my citizenship in heaven is more important than my citizenship of the United States, some people don't like that. But the reality is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are, sometimes your citizenship on earth can change. Some people, Sometimes people cancel their citizenship and they decide they're going to be citizens of another country because they like the rules of that jurisdiction better than the one that they grew up in. You see, our identity is not in politics or the nation state. Our identity is in following Jesus and being his daughter and being his son, being his child. That's our identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the early disciples were obsessed with Jesus having a political kingdom and overthrowing um, and restoring the nation-state kingdom. Jesus says, no, I'm not here to restore a nation-state kingdom. I'm here to put my kingdom in your hearts. Now look at verse 7. He says, he answered, the Father is the one who sets the fixed dates and the times of their fulfillment. You see, God, God knows uh, when the world started and God knows when the world's going to end. And we have to trust that he understands that timeline and we don't. We're not to be concerned about that timeline. We're to be concerned that we represent and do his will here every day in our lives. He says, you're not permitted to know the timing of all that he has prepared by his own authority. You see, it's God's authority <clears throat> that determines the beginning of the world and the end of the world, not our authority. Now, look at verse 8. He says, but I promise you this. Now, he turns it back as Jesus is trying to say, wait for the Holy Spirit. They try to turn it into a political conversation. 
and now he redirects them again back to waiting on the Holy Spirit, just like God does in our life. God explains things to us, and then we think we know what he's saying, and then we have these questions that don't even match up with anything having to do with what he just taught us. And then he redirects us again back to what he was talking about. And he does this here. He says, but I promise you this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be seized with power. You will be my messengers to Jerusalem throughout Judea, the distant provinces, even to the remotest places on the earth. So Jesus says, if you'll wait and you'll get my power, you will go farther, faster. Now that's the trade-off. Now if you learn to wait and you get God's timing, you'll figure out that God can do more in your life in five minutes than you could do in five years. He can speed things up. Because you have to remember, God exists outside of the limits of time and space. The Bible says, you know, for with God, uh, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. You see, God can speed things up when it's his timing and his moment when he wants to do something. And so he's saying that if you wait for the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to go all over the world and be the person that I want you to be and be the movement that I want you to be. And I want to point something out here. A movement of Jesus really has nothing to do with money. We get this confused. Behind me is some of the most expensive real estate in North America, and yet the kingdom of God has almost nothing to do with money. In California, I've seen several business proposals from churches that teach that you need one million dollars to go start a new church with a couple staff people and a place that you rent. You do not need a million dollars to start a church. All you need is two people that feel called to a community and God says, bam, I will be with those two people and I will help those two people go make disciples and I will help those two people teach other people about me and what I want to do in their life. It is that easy. It's that easy. Now, if you have a million dollars and you want to go start a church, God bless you. But the kingdom of God is for common people, simple people. All you need is a few people. Go have some worship, have some prayer, teach the Bible, hang out, and watch what God does. It's amazing. It's exciting to see what God will do when you just give him a couple of breadcrumbs with your life. He can do exciting things through it. Now, <clears throat> look at verse 9. He says, Right after Jesus spoke these words, the disciples saw him being lifted into the, into the sky and disappearing into, the, into a cloud. As they stared into the sky, watching Jesus ascend, two men in white robes suddenly appeared beside them. They told the startled disciples, Galileans, why are you staring up into the sky? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but he will come back in the same way that you saw him ascend. Now this is a beautiful scene 
of Jesus' last words. He says, wait for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we have to capture this moment. Just wait for the Holy Spirit in your life. And then he ascends into heaven and angels tell all of his people, look, the same way that he went out is the same way that he's coming back. And <clears throat> that kind of wraps up this portion of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It's a beautiful portion of scripture. But the main thing, again, that God wants to point out to us through this is that it just takes two people to start a church. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be with them. If you get two people that are called to a community and they wait on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes on those people, look out. God is going to start moving. And what I've learned in my life is that scarcity is the mother of creativity. When you don't have much, you learn to rely on God. I know in my own life, in my own garage, in my home in San Clemente, I have prayed for hundreds of hours in my garage by myself, by myself. Because when you don't have monetary, physical resources, it causes you to pray more, it causes you to get with God more, and it causes you to hear from God more. It causes you to rely upon God more. And my friend, that is exactly where God wants us in our life, is to totally rely upon Him not upon all the things that we typically find comfort in. He wants us to rely upon Him. So I want to ask you today, man, are you relying on God? Are you trusting in God? It's as simple as saying, God, I don't totally understand what you're doing, but I trust you today. I want to rely upon you today. I want to follow you today. I want your will for my life because anything other than that isn't going to get it done here on earth. I'm so excited that you've tuned in uh, for Bible on the Beach today. I hope that you'll share this with a friend. I hope that you'll subscribe to the YouTube channel, and I hope that you'll reference it to other people so that they can learn the Bible for free, and you can pass it along and get it to some other people in your life. Have a beautiful day.